Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guests are Marcy Wheeler, an expert on national security and civil liberties, and Morgan Cloud, our favorite Atlanta, Georgia lawyer. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsforroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Hold On Bags, Magic Spoon, and Henson Shaving in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, James, um, President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine last week was an extraordinary triumph. It was courageous, a real risk for a president to go into a war zone without protection from American forces. I'm not sure it's ever happened before. He showed remarkable, remarkable stamina for a 60-year-old man, much less an 80-year-old, uh, starting in the middle of the night, two flights, 14, 15 hours, 10-hour train ride from Poland to Ukraine. And it was a powerful signal of Allied support for Ukraine and certainly put Putin and the Russians on the defensive. I think he really, um, in, a, in a good way, humiliated them. Uh, it, it was analogous to FDR crossing the Atlantic during World War II. And uh, now there are dope stories from anonymous sources that Biden may not run for re-election. I don't know. Um, uh, and I have my own views. But whatever the president's trip, whatever the president's trip, the strong commitment to Ukraine and this past weekend from I, I really think against this existential threat is going to be a central part of any Biden legacy. Well, I, I, I agree with everything you said about his trip to Ukraine. I, I will repeat, and I've said this Many times before, but just for the record, my prediction is that Trump will not be the Republican nominee and Biden will not be the Democratic nominee. That, that, that's just what I, what I think. And I've thought that for a long time and I still think it. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I think it would be better for him to, um, uh, to retire after a very successful first term, but I'm not sure he is. Is going to, and when I, I, you know, lots of stories with anonymous sources don't really change my views on whether he is or isn't going to. So we'll just see. I do think, I think what's really interesting, though, was the Republican reaction to the trip. Now, there were some exceptions, you know, like Lindsey Graham and those GOP congressmen who traveled to Ukraine. But it was, it was mainly the ugly demagogues and the usual lowlifes. Matt Getz saying Ukraine ought to keep keep Biden and, you know, real low lives like Marjorie Taylor Greene and J.D. Vance. James, this is clearly the pro-Putin wing, and it's a big one, of the Republican Party. Yeah, and, and it, there seems to be some, we'll talk about it with Marcy, some pro-Putin on the left, you know, maybe the nation in the Columbia Review of Journalism, but right. you're John right. Greenwald. The, the, the white trash element of the Republican Party acted just like you would think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was really, they, they, um, you know, you, you could be a die in the wool conservative Republican and you could really think the idea of Joe Biden being president was a dreadful idea. He shouldn't be president again, but you had to marvel at that, at that trip, uh, to Ukraine. It, it, it took guts. It, there were risks. It took courage and it was effective. And it, uh, you could just see how upset the Russians were. Well, that's a good that's a good thing when we get our enemies upset. 
Caduce uh, to the National Review. They really wrote a very, and they're dying to world conservatives you can get. And they were very favorably disposed to crediting President Biden for the trip. Right? There are just not very many of them. But we well, and I think there are probably them. more than come out, but they're, they're scared. They're, 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 they're scared because they know where, yeah, Ron DeSantis sort of equivocated. I mean, he took a shot at Biden, uh, but then he said he ought to be thinking about this and that and his weakness in Afghanistan. It was a really waffling answer. What it primarily showed, I think, was that Ron DeSantis doesn't know a whole lot about this. And uh, so he's winging uh, and we'll see, you know, where he ends up. But um, no, there, there, there were a few exceptions. There just weren't very many. Very few, but there were. Yeah. So kudos to the few. You know, I tell you, James, there was a big, uh, it wasn't a primary. There was a big first election this week in the state of Wisconsin for the state Supreme Court. Uh, they run uh, as nonpartisan, but they aren't partisan. Uh, the Democrat is a progressive judge. Uh, the Republican is a right-wing former judge, a really right-wing former judge, a denier. And the outcome in the April final is really critical because it will determine which side dominates or has a majority on that state Supreme Court, four to three. And if the right wing has a four to three majority, it's a kind of Supreme Court, James, that in, uh, if we repeat 2020, they would likely throw out a Democratic win in that state. So, man, the stakes are huge in April. Well, it, it's so much, you're, you're, you're right, but it's so much huge. First of all, uh, they can rule on the abortion statute. And they're pretty clearly you know, where you think they would be. The other thing is they could weigh in on gerrymandering. They already I mean, have, yeah. This is a, this enormous, and I think the outcome so exceeded even the best Democratic hopes. And, and I think what this will do, if the runoff goes the way that the first round went, and that seems to be the likely case, the, 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 the effects of this are going to be enormous. It's going to be enormous on congressional recruiting, state legislature recruiting, uh, psychology, you name it. And the, the other thing is, you know, keep coming back to this, the Republicans are not going to learn. All right, you would think after the disaster of, of Mastriano and Blake Masters and Tudor Dixon and Don Baldick, they don't care. They're going to keep nominating people like this. Yeah. That, that, and, and that, as a Democrat, that, you know, they're, they're uncomfortably close to winning some of these. But, but, but I, I take great solace in the fact that they are crazy and they elect or, and they nominate crazy people. You got to understand that. Trashy people nominate other trashy people. That's just, that's just the rule of law. And you saw it again. It was some, well, maybe, the, you know, after what happened in 2022, they're not going to learn. They're not going to learn. Yeah, I agree. And the reasons the Democrats are so optimistic now is they, uh, the, the, the two progressive candidates, if you will, got 54%, whereas the two conservative candidates got 46%. But uh, the Democrats, uh, the progressive Democrat, if you will, who won, was the most electable, the party thought, whereas the Republicans had a pretty electable conservative candidate who got creamed by the right, right wing MAGA person. So we need to get uh, Ben Whipper on here. You know, we, well, we got to get Ben on here. You know, our yeah. favorite 
state party chair. I'm sure there's probably a couple co-favorites, but he's right up there. But anyway, April, Wisconsin is a big deal. And James, I think, you know, the left has typically not paid sufficient attention to state Supreme Court races in North Carolina, Ohio, and elsewhere, whereas Republicans nationally have. I think this is a, this is an exception. I think they're going to pour a lot of attention and resources into this week. You know, if you look at the, the spike in fundraising for Democratic secretaries of states and attorney generals and Supreme Court races, you know, that's been a, a, a big mission of this of this podcast. And it has had an enormous effect on you know, on, on, on on Secretary of State and AG. You're right; they have been right. they've been laggardly. And and uh, I mean the, the amount of money that they're starting to raise. Yeah. And you see this state Supreme Court race in in Wisconsin, and the, the, the sky is the limit as to how much how much money that uh, this woman that uh, we nominated can 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 raise. It, and that would be terribly be important huge. because you're right. They yeah. have done it in Secretary of State and Attorney General races. And uh, I, I, know, I, I, they, I give this program considerable credit for sounding the horn here, sounding the ringing horn. the bell or whatever the hell we did. Okay. Yeah, well, both the horn and the bell and the buzzer right too, by the way. Yeah, uh, just just not the gun. Uh, okay. Hey, James, our guest is Marcy Wheeler, who publishes Empty Wheel, a site that attracts considerable interest and attention focusing on national security. Marcy, thanks for joining us from Ireland. Uh, The Columbia Journalism Review published a 23,000 four-part series by former New York Times reporter Jeff Girth that, in essence, argues the press coverage of the Trump-Russia connection was often irresponsibly hyped, and there really was much less to the story. You wrote a detailed analysis. What did you conclude? Uh, That Girth didn't do what he claimed to set out to do, and that he ignored a great deal and uh, got key facts wrong, and in one place even relied on a Russian intelligence product without revealing that to his readers. And so he was going after primarily the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I, I've actually read it. Well, Jeff Girth is not the most graceful writer. Let me put it as kindly as I can. It, it was not an easy read to begin with. But there were certainly a few mistakes and flawed stories in the New York Times and Washington Post reporting among the hundreds of pieces that they did. But the important question is, and, and you're, you can really address this with your expertise, did they get the story right? Did the Russians interfere in the 2016 election to help Trump, whether you could prove collusion or not? They absolutely interfered. Um, in some ways, the New York Times especially didn't go far enough. For example, they didn't know, they've never reported to this day that Mueller referred an ongoing investigation into Roger Stone into whether he conspired in a hack and leak with Russia. So um, the New York Times didn't report that Trump got a $10 million 
infusion in September 2016 from an Egyptian state-owned bank that uh, no one was able to explain in the end because they weren't able to go to Trump organization and actually subpoena that. And the Egyptian bank was kind of inventing stories. Uh, the, the New York Times underplayed the import of this August 7th, uh, August 2nd 2016 meeting between Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik. What happened there? Manafort's continued uh, involvement in an effort to cover up Ukraine. So those are three ways that the New York Times especially didn't get the story right, but they were too gentle on how bad things were in 2016. Of course, Garth mentioned none of those things, even when I asked him specifically about a couple of them. You know, you mentioned Roger Stone, who for decades has really been, uh, you know, I think he, he, he gives meaning to the word sleaze. Uh, he gets short shrift in the girth opus, and he was, of course, convicted uh, for, I think, perjury or for lying, and he was pardoned by Trump. But I've always, I've always been dying to know more about the fact that he knew in advance that the Russians, through WikiLeaks, were going to put out uh, uh, defamatory information on John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. You say that was referred to another venue. What's the status, and, and, and why isn't that... That just strikes me as a rather simple case. Well, what was referred was whether he conspired with Russia and hack. Um, you may recall that in the stuff found at Mar-a-Lago when the FBI went in and, and searched it for classified documents, they found what is described as a clemency, uh, an order of clemency for Roger Stone. And attached to that was something involving the French president. And something in that in that bundle of documents was actually classified at the secret level. There have been um, stories that suggest the document pertains to Emmanuel Macron, the French president, still the French president. And that's interesting because people very close to Roger Stone, people like Jack Posobiec, were involved in a hack and leak with the GRU in spring of 2017. So it could be something like that. That case was actually indicted um, just weeks before the 2020 election. And DOJ, Bill Barr's DOJ, uh, a, a U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh who was one of the most partisan U.S. attorneys under Bill Barr, um, they indicted it, but they claimed not to know how the stolen documents from Macron were released. We know part of how they were released. They were released through Jack Posobiec. Um, and other people who are close to Roger Stone. So we don't know what that ongoing investigation is, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like the Macron hack and leak because Roger Stone, those were all his people. And it was clearly an effort that tied the GRU to um, to to Roger Stone's people. And, and, and where's the investigation taking place now? I mean, is it in France? Is it here? Is it where? And does it? Well, you know, I assume that um, Barr shut it down. I mean, one of the things that yeah. Girth didn't get into that I plan to go back and do a follow up is what happened to these investigations. You know, for example, there was one point where Girth said there was no there there in August 2017. And I showed, you know, here's what Mueller was doing in August 2017. And one of the things he was doing was chasing down $800,000 in donations from um, Vexelberg, Victor Vexelberg, a Russian oligarch. That was never charged. Uh, We know that Michael Cohen said, oh, I didn't actually do anything for the $800,000 that he gave me, Trump's fixer. 
um, right after the election. But we know that Victor Vexelberg is still an issue because we know that he and his cousin were, were donating money to George Santos, the kind of fraudulent Republican from, from, uh, Long Island. So I would expect that kind. I mean, and, and, um, Vexelberg is one of maybe five oligarchs that the United States has focused on closely in their sanctions. Um, related cases out, out of, out of New York, um, in the wake of the Russian invasion. So those are the kinds of things that I think are the follow on to the Mueller investigation that are real, that are visible, um, and that don't get talked about by people like Jeff Garth. Well, let me ask you one more before turning over to James. I think maybe the greatest gift to Trump was the Steele dossier. And, uh, I don't think there's any question that when they knew about it and Comey briefed Trump about it, that the, News media certainly should have reported on it and everything else. But I think for BuzzFeed to publish that raw uh, file, uh, unverified raw file, was really bad journalism. But more importantly, I think that the, the, the dossier, as I understand it, and you, you'll forget more than we'll know, Marcy, uh, it, had not, it was irrelevant to the Mueller report. It was irrelevant to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, but its flaws are central to the pro-Trump apologist. Not even that, but um, it, it the, the DOGIG investigation on Carter Page that these people all love to harp on uh, strongly implied that uh, Oleg Deripaska, again, very close to Paul Manafort, the boss of Konstantin Kalimnik, somebody who was closely involved in this whole operation, they imply that Oleg Deripaska learned about the 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 project very early on. That makes sense because Oleg Deripaska actually had Christopher Steele working for him as well. Um, and, and there is, uh, there is abundant reason to believe that key stories, including the Michael Cohen one, Michael Cohen in Prague, were disinformation. Uh, we know that the source of that story was a woman who was in touch with Dmitry Peskov, Vladimir Putin's spokesperson. And we know that Dmitry Peskov knew that Trump and Cohen were lying to hide the conversation that Cohen had with Dmitry Peskov's office in January of 2016. So it would be brilliant as disinformation because it would say Michael Cohen had contact with, with uh, the Kremlin, which he did, but it would shift that contact to October, to Prague, to a place that he had to deny, um, even while Peskov knew that Cohen and Trump were lying to hide this earlier conversation with his office. So um, there's good reason to believe it was disinformation. Paul Manafort went to Spain in January of 2017 and came back and told everyone, hey, let's let's debunk the Russian investigation by pointing to the flaws in the dossier. So I suspect that if it, you know, whether or not it started out this way, that it became a way for Russia to kind of um, mess with the United States on another level. None of these apologists want to get into the fact that it was disinformation. And if it was disinformation, their continued focus on it is really just doing the bidding of Russia still. Right, right. James. Oh, thank you. Well, so, Marcy, you come extremely highly recommended. I had clandestine CIA agents getting me your email and journalists. <laughs> and you have an enormous following in the intelligence community in the United States and justifiably a, a, a ton of respect. So I just want our, our listeners to, to understand they're talking to one of the top national security investigative sites there. It's called Empty Wheel. I, I highly recommend it. So th there was also a 900 and something page Senate Intelligence Committee report that 
completely debunks. I'm, I'm sick of talking about the inaccuracies in the, the Jeff Gersh column because they're multitudinous and they're well documented. What I'm interested in is how did they come, a, a freshman journalism student at State Teachers College would submit something like this, you would flunk them in a second. And what I'm interested about is the relationship with the Columbia Journalism Review and the nation. And do you suspect, or should people look into the fact that maybe some money change hands here? Yeah. Um, so at the same time that, that they released this series, Duncan Campbell in Scotland released a story that he had been trying to publish uh, since 2017 that pushed back on the nation's kind of uh, public publication of, of garbage, really. I mean, there were all of these conspiracy theories. The Russians didn't exfiltrate the documents. And so he had been working on this with CJR for a very long time. Ultimately, they, you know, after a bunch of, after going all the way through fact check, they killed it. And only after that did he learn that the nation and CJR were partnering together on some climate change stuff. So, yeah, you, you do need to wonder why CJR allowed a piece that was this uh, problematic to go forward. I mean, one of the things I pointed out is that one of the one of the it's a really weedy error, but one of the clearest errors, actually, it's a multi-part error. It's like five things wrong in a paragraph that Girth made was one that he lifted entirely from Aaron Mate, who is the guy that the nation was paying to do all of these very pro-Russian columns at the time. And I had asked them specifically, why, you know, do you think Aaron Mate got this story about this case right? And they refused to respond. Um, and and refused to address the fact that they had lifted Aaron Mate's errors, you know, completely without disclosing. I mean, in the same way they didn't disclose the Russian intelligence product they used, they didn't disclose that they were lifting Aaron Mate. I mean, there there are a bunch of instances where you can see errors and say that one probably comes from Glenn Greenwald, that one probably comes from Aaron Mate, that one comes from you know somebody else. But I went to the effort of showing that one in particular because it was one that I had followed in real time and I knew that Mate had gotten wrong and they just, you know, they said a lot of nice things about Aaron Mate and then just replicated his errors. So, so Marcy, the Chinese have a famous saying, I guess they do, I've heard it a thousand times, that a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you look at a picture of John Durham, he's screaming, I am a massive asshole at you. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I never saw a guy that looked exactly like who he is. I mean, you can't say that he doctored his photo thing. How, how bad, and I know you've reported extensively on the whole Durham thing. How ridiculous was this, this entire thing? It was really ridiculous. Um, you know, the New York Times, and again, Girth uh, did not retract or did not uh, update his series after the New York Times had its very scathing review of a lot of things that went on with Durham's investigation. But even before the New York Times story, we knew that Durham was ignoring evidence that Mueller had found, was ignoring um, the, uh, the Sussman case, for example, simply didn't account for the fact that the reason these researchers were focused on this anomaly, that they believed actually was real, still believe was real, the reason they were focused on it was because of Trump's comments, Russia, are you listening? Their response, they knew that Trump was covering up that he had business deals with Russia. They were right. Um, and that's why they were so interested in the Alpha Bank uh, 
the Alpha Bank thing. And in both cases, Durham tried to keep that kind of stuff out. He tried to keep out. Um, there was this moment in the Danchenko case where he was panicked because the defense had made a really good case to bring in the communications that Sergei Millian, um, who was being investigated as a Russian agent at the time, that Sergei Millian had with Igor Danchenko, uh, who was Christopher Steele's main source. And the term, uh, outside the, the listening of the jury, he's like, you know, I know these sound really creepy. And it's like, yes, yes, what Millian was doing with George Papadopoulos in real time, because he knew Papadopoulos was an aide to, to Trump, and he knew Papadopoulos had been given an advance warning about the emails, and he knew Papadopoulos was, you know, a coffee boy. What Millian was saying to Papadopoulos was really creepy, and Durham just wanted to keep that out of his trial altogether. And it's like once you bring those once you bring those details in, your entire conspiracy theory just crumbles. Um, and I, you know, when when the cases started, I I hoped that that was the case. But when it went to trial, it was just even worse than I imagined because he he was so far out on a limb trying to spin these conspiracy theories out of a couple of pieces of of paper. And I, you know, I'm glad that he was embarrassed by the results, both two acquittals. Pretty embarrassing. So you you cover the intelligence and foreign policy space a lot. Do, do you have any particular insight on Ukraine or w- w- any idea how this thing can end or, or just will it go on indefinitely? What, what's your kind of general view of all this? I don't know. I mean, I think Putin is trying to hold out long enough to get Republicans in Congress to alter U.S. support for for Ukraine. I mean, that's my guess is he's playing a long game to get people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy uh, Jim Jordan, he thinks that if he can buy enough time, he can get them to reverse course in, in the United States, at least until 2024. And so I think that everyone knows that. And I think that Ukraine knows they need to do something well before the 2024 election, because Putin is not going to deal unless he has to before then. But I also think that sanctions are hurting Russia. I think Russia, you know, the, the, um, I'm in Europe, right? Europe made it through the winter without, it was a fairly mild, it was a very mild winter where I am, but it was a fairly mild winter in Europe. And that allowed Europe to get through the winter without uh, gas sanctions on Russia really, really leading to unrest. Um, and I think- How far are you from Dublin, Marcy? Um, I am two hours by train or drive. Oh. Yeah. So, okay, so I, I got, mean, it's Irish uh, roads. They're not very quick. Okay, yeah. So I'll be in Dublin early September. I have a huge family in County Monaghan. We had a family reunion. Oh yeah. In September of last year, that that Carville's all over the place. <laughs> so, all, right. all right, Albert, go ahead. Mar- Mar- Marcy, I think I'm right, uh, and we should know you did testify before the Mueller investigation uh, about an FBI source. Is that correct? Um, not before Mueller. I. I met with the FBI in the summer of 2017, and I know that things that I shared with Mueller got moved under Mueller uh, probably in November of 2017. Okay. All right. But you shared with Mueller. Your range and expertise is really um, very broad. Um, Let me ask you what you know about Charles McGonigal, the former head of counterintelligence in New York, indicted for working with a Russian oligarch in Albanian intelligence just based on instinct, I suspect this is a much bigger story than just that. I think it may well be, but I also think that 
I mean, we, we talked about Christopher Steele already, and I think that there are real parallels between McGonagall and Steele because both mm-hmm. McGonagall and Steele believed that they could flip Oleg Darapaska and that made both of them vulnerable. I mean, with McGonagall, you had the affair and financial vulnerabilities ahead of time that I suspect were visible to Darapaska either. I mean, one of the things that I think is not getting enough attention is that the woman that McGonagall was having an affair with is really, really chummy with Rudy Giuliani. So at the time that this investigation was beginning, Rudy Giuliani was being cultivated by people like Andrei Durkacz, uh, who is Ukrainian, but he, everyone agrees he's a Russian agent. So, um, so you had, um, there were multiple ways in which the Russians could have found out about the affair and about the financial vulnerabilities. He also spent time in Montenegro, which Deripaska has a lot of ties to. Um, and so against that background, you had somebody trying to do exactly what Christopher Steele was trying to do, which was flip Oleg Deripaska, who instead gets kind of suckered in by Deripaska and, and, um, and used. And we don't know, I mean, um, I wrote a post the other day pointing out that the government has built the, both, has built both cases entirely on unclassified documents. But in the, in the New York case, they are going through what's called the SEPA process to use, you know, so that if McGonagall says, I want classified information, I, I, you know, there's a way to deal with that. Um, and McGonagall, and this is again something that I think needs more attention. McGonagall is represented by Seth Ducharme, who was one of Bill Barr's top aides. And starting after the first impeachment, Bill Barr went through, went to unbelievable lengths to prevent Rudy, to allow Rudy Giuliani to, to accept dirt from these Ukrainians who were feeding dirt on Hunter Biden without being in any legal jeopardy. So, you know, basically what he did is he stopped the SDNY investigation into Rudy and his flunkies. He moved any further investigation into Andre Durkacz to EDNY. He allowed Rudy to go feed uh, Pittsburgh's U.S. attorney with dirt from Ukraine. And then he had the investigation into Hunter Biden in Delaware. It was like this juggling game. Well, Seth Ducharme was at the middle of that, protecting Rudy Giuliani. And guess who's now representing uh, Charles McGonagall? And, and Seth Ducharme would have been in a position where he would have learned the early parts of the investigation into McGonagall while he was still at, at Maine DOJ. So that's a really suspect connection to me. And I you know, wouldn't be surprised if both McGonagall, who, of course, had access to all of this classified information on Deripaska and others, and Ducharme try and engage in gray mail, effectively try and make it impossible to prosecute right. the New York case. Um, to uh, effectively to, to, to get away with what he did. Now, given that they've charged it in two cities, you've got the New York case tied to Oleg Deripaska. You've got the, the um, D.C. case, which is the stuff when he was still an FBI agent um, tied to Albania, that he was doing corrupt things with right, Albania. Right. Um, DOJ, I probably will try and leverage those two against each other. Um, but, but yeah, you know, we, if I'm DOJ, I want to flip McGonagall and get him to explain exactly how he was cultivated and what he gave, if anything, to Deripaska. Um, what, you know, he, they, 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 they are not charging McGonagall with anything tied to spying. They're charging him with FARA violations. As I said, that, that they've built it so they can do this all without any classified information at all. 
But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to try and use these prosecutions to find out more about Deripaska's operation. Final question, uh, turn it back to James. You, you have dealt with security and intelligence agencies for a long time, and you've written about some of the abuses that have transpired. The House Republicans are launching a big probe, the Weaponization Committee. They say it's going to be like the Church Committee. What's your take? You know, I used to um, brief some of those members of Congress back when I, uh, before I left the country, and not many of them are really smart, and not many of them have great advisors. They're, they're trying, I mean, the first hearing, the first Jim Jordan hearing, his examples of weaponization of the government involved uh, Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson complaining that the FBI briefed them that their narrative about Hunter Biden was the one that Russia was pushing as disinformation. And also, that was one example, right? And the other example was Tulsi Gabbard complaining that Hillary had had said she was groomed by Russia. Like, so in other words, and then the whole Twitter thing that Twitter took down for one day, the New York Post story, um, underlying it all is this argument that private that private entities must subject themselves to Russian disinformation. And I've been trying to push other journalists to like understand that that's where they're going, but there's no there there. I mean, on Twitter, we know that Trump was trying to censor Twitter. Biden wasn't in a position to, he wasn't in government, but the only thing Biden asked Twitter to take down were non-consensual pictures of Hunter Biden nude, right? Um, we know that Twitter has always uh, preferred far right speech than it has demo, you know, lefty speech. Uh, we know that the case against Carter Page actually was not that unusual. I mean, DO, DOJ and FBI and DOJ IG have done some follow up, and they've they've said, you know, yeah, there were problems with this stuff. Carter Page wasn't all that special. <laughs> so um, their stories aren't aren't don't have much merit, but. Uh, you know, it is what it is. It, it worked in the past. It worked on the Benghazi investigation. They're trying to replicate that. So, yeah, I would just note that, uh, you know, the big complaint about Twitter taking down the New York Post story for a day, I think uh, the Wall Street Journal, also owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, declined to publish that story because they thought it was too flimsy at that time. So uh, the idea that it was some kind of a left wing conspiracy is somewhat undercut by that, I think. But James Carville, take over. Uh, so, Marshall, I'm run a left-wing conspiracy, but no, no, a Clinton-land conspiracy by you. <laughs> that James Comey, the revered FBI director, was utterly spineless and gutless. That people like Charles McGowan and James Calstrom, Rudy Giuliani in the New York FBI's office, basically forced him to break all protocol or policy in the Justice Department to announce that they were going to reopen the investigation to Hillary Clinton's Emails, which, by the way, not a single goddamn one had anything marginally classified. Do you concur in our evaluation that James Comey was rolled by the New York FBI office into breaking all the Corman protocol as FBI director? I think that and, it, and the leaks weren't just from New York. You know, I, I think like right. um, I think that one of the things I showed is that there was an FBI agent that I have multiple sources saying was was sending pro-Trump tweets who was involved in the Mike Flynn case. 
there were two anti-Hillary agents who were involved in the Clinton Foundation case, and they were the only ones who, who were shown to be biased and running informants against a campaign. Um, so I think that there was a vast anti-Hillary sentiment in the FBI, not just the New York Times. And I think that- New York, that New York FBI. The New York, yeah, New York but, but, but yeah, the agent that I just described who was involved in the Flynn case, um, he was in D.C. Uh, and he was, he had a central role in deciding that Trump did not know about Flynn's lies to the Russians, uh, the lies about, you know, Flynn's conversations with the Russian ambassador, even though there's plenty of evidence that he did. Um, so, you know, it, it goes beyond New York. And I think that it is the case that not just Comey, but also um, Andy McCabe were were on tenterhooks about that kind of uh, backlash. And it's that kind of backlash that Jim Jordan is trying to exploit right now. I mean, one of the guys that he calls a whistleblower is an agent who refused to uh, participate in a SWAT-based arrest of, um, there were three in Florida, of five guys who have ties to the three percenters, they're militia members, um, who were um, part of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So this is the kind of person who is feeding Jim Jordan, is a guy who refuses to treat the people who attacked the Capitol as a threat to the United States. Um, and that's Jim Jordan's idea of a whistleblower. Well, Marcy, on my behalf, I can, I'm sure I'll feel the same way. We can't thank you enough. And to have somebody, of, of your insight on, on our program, it's just tremendously meaningful to me. And uh, anybody, you should go to Empty Wheel. It's literally one of the most insightful sites that I know. And I, I know a lot of people that are really involved in national security and national politics, and they are justifiably huge fans of yours. And I hope we can catch up in Ireland. But might be going to Galway too. Are you closer to Galway than Dublin? Uh, I am closer to Galway. Plus, yeah. I mean, I have to drive up there, but uh, yeah, I, I can well, get to either one. Well, we also want to make. We also <laughs> want to make sure, Marcy, as this thing unfolds more and more that they, that you'll come back as a guest because you have we been. Sure do. I second what James said. You've been a fabulous guest. Absolutely. Happy to be on. Great. Thank you very much, Marcy. James, there are a lot of excellent Atlanta lawyers. We have our favorite. Morgan Cloud. Uh, he's been a guest before, and he's very knowledgeable about a lot of stuff that's going on uh, down there right now with that, uh, with that grand jury and that prosecutor. Morgan, we'll get to the prosecutor in a minute. And I know that Fulton County, uh, in Fulton County, grand jury doesn't indict, it recommends. But it seemed to me it was really bad form, maybe worse, for that grand jury foreman to come out and blab all about their proceedings, how many <laughs> indictments... Uh, I mean, man, if I were the prosecutor or the judge, I wouldn't have been happy about that. Well, you know, I can't speak for the judge, but uh, I'm sure no prosecutor likes to have this happen. And the uh, one of the kind of hallmarks of our understanding of grand juries is that they're secret. I mean, grand jury secrecy, those three words go together automatically. And uh, so to have... 
the prosecutor's potential evidence be at least strongly hinted at, to have witnesses talked about and have a grand juror, the four-person, talk in, in some detail about her impressions of witnesses. There's no way the prosecutor would want that, at least any prosecutor I've ever talked to. I haven't, of course, talked to Ms. Willis about this. Uh, and I'm sure that in talk shows all over the country, former prosecutors are are uh, pulling out their hair and in just for just the reason you just said. Yeah. Um, having said that, and I do think it was really, really outrageous, but having said that, uh, I, I think it may well be that indictments are likely. I think she's probably right on that. But it's hard to think, if there are, it's hard to think of a more compelling case than the one against Donald Trump, who they have on tape, Morgan. The, you know, one of the things that was so interesting and I think surprising to lots of us about the, not just like an interview, but the various interviews, I haven't had a chance uh, since they were released last night to look at everything. But this, this young woman did interviews with the New York Times, apparently the AP, CNN, NBC, and of course right. the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which I think had the story first. Uh, they, uh, she talked about details like uh, her expectation was there would be a dozen or more indictments didn't name anyone. I mean, she didn't give any names, but she made the prediction that is something I am sure that Fannie Willis did not want to have said in public. Uh, and it's particularly interesting because of what you said at the very beginning, Al. The, this special purpose grand jury did not make an indictment. It could not issue a bill of indictment. It simply made recommendations to the prosecutor and then it's her discretion to decide what to present to the more traditional grand jury that's seated now and whether to seek any charges, let alone charges against the at least dozen people, it seems that the special purpose grand jury recommended. So it, it is a really unique situation. Wouldn't you agree, though, Morgan, that if there are indictments, you would certainly have to put Donald Trump in the top tier of likely I think in one of the interviews, uh, maybe the CNN interview, uh, I read that she was asked, Ms. Coors was the chair, the foreperson was asked directly whether they indicted Mr. Trump. And of course, she did not say, but she did say very pointedly in response, well, I don't think that you'll be greatly surprised at what we did and or what we recommended. And later on, she spoke about, and, and it may, perhaps in another interview, about how her major concern was that the grand that the there would be no action by the the formal grand jury and by Miss uh, uh, by the DA's office, suggesting that they really strongly see, uh, proposed indictments, and that she seemed to implicate Mr. Trump. But that's very ambiguous. She was very careful not yeah. to say any names. Tell me this morning, if there are indictments, how strong is that prosecution team? Well, I think, you know, I think we talked about this uh, last summer, Al. The, the prosecution team is very experienced. I mean, before, uh, before this grand jury, uh, there's been no more highly publicized state racketeering prosecution ever than the one for the Atlanta public schools about nine years ago. And Ms. Will, right. uh, you know, the 
the district attorney then, an assistant district attorney, brought that case. And her, uh, on the racketeering side of things, her uh, main lawyer then is her main lawyer now, who's the, the expert on state RICO statutes. And so I, I would say, in general, it's a very professional, very experienced team that's used to high-profile cases, though I, probably there's never been a local grand jury case that was this high-profile ever. I mean, this is... This is a big deal. Uh, I think that's, an, that's a safe assumption. James. Thank you. Well, well Morgan, I, I, I have a lot of friends in, in Georgia, you well know. And I, I can tell you and our listeners, as a matter of fact, they were blindsided by this interview and they were not happy about it. Yeah, well, uh, I think that's absolutely, you know, that I, would not I, shock anybody. <laughs> yeah, that, I, that, that, I, that well, I can course, report right. is, is, is an out-and-out fact. All right. I, I guess... The, you, when she talks about multiple in, in, indictments and you being the big knowledge expert because that's how I found you, so all my friends in Georgia, it, <laughs> it, looks, it looks like they're going to proceed with this RICO thing if they have the, these multiple indictments. Is that, does that make it more likely the way the statute is written as a scheme involving other people? Well, yeah, especially, I mean, I think it's really interesting there, there are two things that I thought were really interesting of the statements that I've seen that Ms. Cora said yesterday. One we've already talked about, that it sounds like this grand jury proposed more than 12, at least 12 people be indicted, maybe more. But uh, she also said in one of the interviews, as I understand it, that 12 people or more had been granted immunity. Well, that's... <laughs> That's a lot of people to be granted immunity in any case. And what it suggests to me is that the prosecution team very carefully was trying to do what they do in any organizational setting, which is get the lower level people to become to turn and provide evidence so they can work their way up the ladder. And we know how high that ladder goes in this case. So I think just that fact suggests they're trying to go after a broader group of people and a broader group of activities, which puts it right in the lap of the RICO statute, which is aimed at organizational behavior. Can, can they make an argument to quash the indictment? Is there any legal ramifications of what Ms. Kors did? It was just an unfortunate public relations, you know, atmospheric, if you will. But can you think of any legal ramifications? You know, I... I cannot imagine that there are not defense lawyers all over the country um, <laughs> working on that very point right now, trying to figure out how right. can we use this to our advantage. My, my view, I mean, no one knows. I mean, this Georgia special purpose grand jury uh, institution is so unusual. It's, I, I don't know of other states that have it. There may be. I just have never heard of it anywhere else. And it's so rarely used that there's just no body of experience to say, well, this is what has to happen. And in fact, it appears that Judge McBurney, the judge supervising these grand juries, told the grand jurors they could speak to the press within limits. And uh, so it may be there are no legal repercussions. Tactically, there certainly will be. There'll be people, you know, for example, uh, her comments about Mr. Giuliani were so complimentary about him as a witness that her personal impressions, not talking about the, what the grand jurors talked about, but her impressions that I can't imagine that if, if he's uh, indicted 
or if he's called as a witness, I can't imagine that uh, she won't be brought in in some way, that won't be brought in some way to talk about how friendly and engaging and serious he was, because that's how she described him. So, right. you know, that's, it's, I don't know that there's any legal implication, because, again, this special purpose grand jury had no authority to issue an indictment. They aren't issuing the indictment. Another grand jury does that work. Right. But I think, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's clearly there's a public relations aspect to this that, again, I'm sure your friends in Georgia are right. The, right. the prosecutors aren't happy with. Yeah, when I first saw Alternative Out, I said, God, that's pretty smart. They put it out there, and that's just going to make everybody nervous and come in and cut more <laughs> deals. But they weren't that Machiavellian, okay? But I, for a moment, I had a fleeting thought that this is a brilliant strategy. You know, if I'm Lindsey Graham, I'm going like, shit, I'm calling my lawyer and said, Let, let's get in line. <laughs> but, well, but, you know, and it is. And again, she said similarly, according to the stories in the press, she did similarly nice things about, as you said, Lindsey Graham, about Rudy Giuliani, and about General Michael Flynn. And so, I mean, these are all people who have some capacity to be considered potential parties or certainly witnesses. And so uh, I guarantee you their lawyers are, are looking for the tapes of her interviews. <laughs> she talked about how Lindsey Graham told her she could wear a Santa Claus cap. I mean, I, you know, this was not a she did not come across as a uh, terribly uh, serious juror. Maybe that's unfair. Uh, Morgan, let me ask you, you, you this. Uh, nobody knows, but if they do bring a RICO statue, what is the speculation of, 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 of are there high-ranking Republicans and who might they be that potentially could be ensnared? Well, the, you know, the one person who initially was named as a a target, uh, a potential target who was excused from these proceedings, exempted from these proceedings, is David Schaefer, who is the head of the Georgia Republican Party and an important uh, member of the Republican hierarchy in Georgia. But because of, as we talked about last time, uh, one of uh, James Georgia friends' uh, participation in a, a primary election fundraising, uh, this uh, uh was not something that was kept within the scope of this grand jury. This David Schaefer was excused. He would be within Georgia, the highest ranking person. The, uh, this, this, uh, Emily Kaur said in her interviews that there would be people whose names we might not recognize. So it may well be that some of the people are not high ranking Republican officials. On the other hand, I mean, the, it's, who knows what's going to happen? We don't know. But the implication of uh, much of her, that we can draw from many of her comments are that the highest ranking Republican, uh, Donald Trump, uh, is implicated. And so, right. I mean, that's, that's as high as you're going to get in this scheme. Will Judge McBurney preside over any trials also? I don't know. No. I don't know. That would, you know, I, I just don't know. I think that would be within the jurisdiction of this Council of State Prosecutors who run these things who, for example, are deciding whether David Schaefer could be investigated by somebody else. And, um, and you know, yeah, you talked about how it'll be the regular grand jury that'll bring indictments. But, you know, as has been often um, joked about, you know, a, a good prosecutor could uh, get an indictment of a ham sandwich. This really is going to be Ms. Willis who's going to decide, isn't it? Well, yeah. And I don't and I have to tell you, I mean, uh, <laughs> Another kind of fact coming out of this interview that I want to put two pieces together. They interviewed 75 witnesses. 
at least 12, according to Ms. Coors, were granted immunity. That's approaching 20% of the witnesses. This suggests that they have gathered and produced and developed a lot of evidence. There, she said that they've heard multiple phone calls involving the president and uh, other people in the president's, President Trump's orbit, um, and that they listened to phone calls, maybe dozens of phone calls, and they've seen documents and videotapes. I think she's got a ton of evidence. I really think that Ms. Willis has a ton of evidence, and I don't think this is like indicting a chair or a ham sandwich or a tree. I mean, I think this is a, there are people who, uh, if they get indicted, she's got a lot of stuff. And, and that's what, you know, the basis, according to Ms. Coors, for the idea that there may have been perjury was that she said that in one of her interviews, witnesses said things under oath, and they had testimony from other witnesses or other kinds of evidence, like documentary evidence, which made them question whether some witnesses spoke the truth or whether they committed perjury. Well, yeah. that's the kind of evidence that's golden in a grand jury setting. Right. James. No, no man, I, I, I appreciate you so much coming on the program. And, and you know, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to have you back multiple times because this story doesn't seem like that it's going away. I, I, I just add to what you said, that they've had a lot of cooperating witnesses, I suspect there are more cooperating witnesses that are going to come on board here between now and decision time, if you will. Well, and, and again, that could be part of what, you know, the, the special purpose grand jury was dissolved about a month ago. And one of the reasons uh, that it may take time for the regular grand jury to issue indictments, if they issue indictments, is just that, that the district attorney's office is working to get more evidence and more witnesses by using what they've got now to persuade other people to come forward, uh, people right. who pled the fifth. So, I mean, it's, um, that's really a possibility. Well, I can't thank you enough, Professor, and uh, I'm pretty sure that this is not your last appearance on this podcast. <laughs> oh, I, we can guarantee that, Morgan Cloud, you're our go-to guy in what may be a really big go-to story. Uh, well, it sure could be. Months. And, I, and I, before we go, though, I have to congratulate James personally, because as far as I can remember, I don't know, you know a lot more about this than I do, James. Yesterday has got to have been the most memorable Fat Tuesday in in recent <laughs> history. I mean, it wasn't just the first great Fat Tuesday since 2019, where you've got right. President Biden in Poland, you've got right. oh, Putin God. in Russia, and then you've got this thing with this person it, in it, Georgia. So it was it, a big by day. The way, you had perfect weather, which that <laughs> doesn't right. happen a lot. You usually, yeah. you know, from Friday on, yeah. it, it was it only Mars had stupid goddamn shooting. Uh, <laughs> well... Going, Morgan going Cloud, back. you are a fabulous guest. We appreciate it. And as James said, you're you're going to be back. Thank you. Go teach your class. It's always, it's always fun to talk with you guys. Thank, thank you, you, Professor. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And now for our outrages of the week. God, these choices are hard. There's so many. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has reportedly turned over 41,000 hours of the January 6th mob assault on the Capitol to Fox News' Tucker Carlson. There's much to unpack here. 
McCarthy lives in mortal fear for his job every day, and I'm sure is worried that Carlson and his primetime Fox colleagues, the same ones who lied to their viewers about the 2020 election denying, as revealed in the old Dominion suit, that they might stir up the crazy right in his caucus to unseat him. So he'll do whatever he can to placate them. But these videotapes are matters of security. The January 6th committee only used material with the approval of Capitol Police. I don't believe, I, I, James, maybe I'm wrong, I don't recall any of the January 6th committee leaking tapes to Rachel Maddow or MSNBC. As for Tucker Carlson, once a journalist, we already know what he's going to do with this. Yeah, I mean, it's an outrage. I'm not going to give outrage. Well, you know, we talked about President Biden's uh, trip and how successful it was, and it was. I still don't see a concerted effort for propaganda on the home front. And everybody knows what Putin's plan is. It's just to wait us out. And you look across the board and you can see support for our mission or, or our help in Ukraine continues to fall. And at some point, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's going to dissipate. And Putin is just waiting us out. And we have got to have a determined home front propaganda campaign, not just in the United States, but Western Europe also. And I think the president trip was great. I think we've got to parlay that and make it into a concerted effort. Yeah, I agree. Well, James, we have a lot of great listener questions uh, this week, as always, it's hard to choose, but uh, we will we will try. Uh, Alan in Waltham, Massachusetts, asked, and I'm going to combine this with another one, too. Alan wants to ask, what in the world is going on in Ohio? What do you think of the local, state, and federal response so far? And with the same question, Trudy, who lives in Ohio, didn't tell us where, but she said the East Palestine derailment, ecological disaster, wasn't it the Trump administration? that loosen rail safety regulations that had earlier been promulgated by Obama. Well, you, you know that, Al. It, 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 that is correct. I, I, I'm pretty sure it is. that that's the case. Yep. And it was a result, that train had a... Look, this is something I actually worked in a chemical plant. Where I grew up now is justifiably known as Cancer Alley in the United States, and that's the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And, and it's been documented again and again and again. And when I was in law school, I worked at a chemical plant and we used ethyl benzene, uh, um, ethyl chloride and benzene to make a product called styrene. That stuff is dangerous. And I, 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 I don't know if it's as dangerous as vinyl chloride. They had two employees on a 150-car train and one trainee, all right? This is no way to run a railroad. And we don't know the effects that it's going to have on the, on the aquifers. We don't know the effect it's going to have on long-term. We don't know anything. And the EPA is going to charge Norfolk Southern three times the which they should. There's going to be multiple lawsuits. But if I know the United States, we'll just move on to the next story. And this is, think this is deregulation on steroids. Two employees for 150 cars carrying some of the most dangerous crap in the world, in the world. 
And we are nowhere close to knowing the long run, long-term manifestations of this. I promise you, this is dangerous crap. When we, we need to stay on it. And you think Ohio Senator J.D. Vance will try to get to the bottom of this, James? J.D. Vance. I, I mean, I, I texted uh, last night with, with Tim Ryan, and you know, he, he, he definitive, but but. The people are very, very, and, and justifiably, and it's not, it, by the way, it's, it's also Beaver County, Pennsylvania. It's right there on the, uh, on the western border of Pennsylvania, eastern border of Ohio. This is a potentially, I, I, I don't want to say definitely, but this, the ramifications of this are potentially enormous. Right. Yeah, they've they got to bankrupt these assholes, bankrupt them. Next, Maria in South Carolina, who says she was a member of the Governor Dick Riley era Democratic Party. Boy, was Dick, Dick Riley was one of the great public servants of the, last, uh, of the last 40 years. But she asked, do you think the South Carolina Trump diehards will support Nikki Haley during the primary? No, I don't. Uh, I think uh, uh, Nikki Haley is, you know, she's playing in the middle of the tennis court, as they say. She's kind of going to be the non-Trump person. She'll be different. She's sort of, on Tuesday, says she's an internationalist. On Wednesday, kind of backs down a little bit. Uh, and I think she's just got such a tightrope uh, to walk on that the Trump diehards on. And the other senator from, uh, or the one senator, rather, from the junior senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, is thinking about running, too. And I saw Politico did just a, I mean, God, I've never seen such a puff piece on Tim Scott. I wasn't quite sure what his accomplishments were. But I, I, I rather doubt there's going to be a whole lot of room uh, for Nikki Haley when it comes to the crunch, James. You know, there's a trait that, I think that it's common to great politicians. Maybe there's some exceptions, but but way more followed this group. They're all very competitive, uh, but they never look like they're trying too hard. And she is just the opposite. She she looks like you can see her sweat. You know, it's like Woody Mays. You couldn't. He didn't look like he was trying that hard. All right, great athletes have that 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 you know kind of graceful things, just like great politicians do. And you can just see her calculating. I don't know if she's a bad person. I don't suggest that. But she's not a very good politician at all. And I don't expect very much out of her. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I agree. Michael in East Brunswick, New Jersey, wants to know why isn't the president forcefully using the Department of Education and speaking out more regarding the systemic efforts by uh, Ron DeSantis to deny Americans history, banning books and demonizing educators. As a former Board of Education president member in my community, Michael says, I know firsthand how influential and forceful the federal DOE can be if it wants to be. I, 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 I don't know. I, you know I, just, I just statutorily, I don't know what they can do. I do know that the Duval County, which is Jacksonville, uh, took the story of Roberto Clemente out of the library, all right? Mm-hmm. Roberto Clemente, some of you baseball fans, non-baseball fans, uh, was a guy that had 3,000 hits. He was the most famous Afro-Latin, I don't know, whatever he was, whatever. And he was, on New Year's Day, he, when he was still active, he was delivering relief goods of some catastrophe there. So I guess I think it was in Central America and plane crash that he died tragically. One of the more admirable professional athletes of any sport. And when you start getting rid of Roberto Clemente, you're, this is 
you, you talk about cancel culture, uh, outrageous cancel culture. That's what this is. And I, and I, I, I concur with you. So we, we're not going to tell 10-year-olds that there, there's not racism or gay people in the world? This is so stupid. It's just beyond stupid. And every time I see these book burners at, at a school board meeting, it, it literally makes me want to throw up. I mean, they try to use this as just a, an anti-black, uh, uh, sometimes anti-Hispanic. I mean, they kind of forget. It's good to learn our history. There, was, there used to be signs all over Boston and other places, Irish need not apply. Uh, I mean, what we did to Japanese Americans uh, at the beginning of World War II in the concentration camps, we have a terrible history. But we've, we've, we've gotten a lot better, and it's good to understand that history. And we are much more of a melting pot than almost any other country in the world. But uh, don't pretend like uh, we didn't have problems. I, I agree, James. Uh, and also don't discount the fact that sometimes when they write the syllabus for some of these courses, they, they, they're more, they, they can be more into indoctrination in actual history. Mm-hmm. We've got to be very careful that we teach actual history. Right. And right. that can be done. There's consensus is on a, a lot a, a lot of history. Right. Stephen in Shenzhen, China. We got oh, a wow. China question today. Ask, would it be legal, ethical, and effective for a political organization to transfer a significant number of employees or volunteers from safe states to battleground states a few weeks before an election with instructions to take up residence and register to vote there? Well, I don't think, you know, a state government uh, or a municipality can order their employees to move from one state to another, but individuals can do it. Now, they have to get there and, and, and they have to be able to register uh, with, with, with sufficient time before an election. Ain't going to happen much, Stephen. I mean, you know, it really ain't going to happen much. I mean, people right. who live, you know, and may have two homes, and not very many people do that, may be able to decide which state they vote in. But um, I understand what you're getting at, but I'm, I'm afraid it's not very practical. Yeah, I, I, for the most part, I concur. There are examples like in, 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 in 2020 election, you know, ask me in, in, in people that deployed people to, to Pennsylvania, you know, the weekend before the election to door knock. And I mean, no, it's not going to be a massive migration from one state to another. Yeah. But when, you know, you're adjacent, you know, it, it's better to be working in the field of work in Pennsylvania than it is Maryland. And I, I agree, James, that, but I, what, what Stephen's talking about is voting. And I yeah, absolutely, right. volunteering, yeah, door knocking, but right. voting is that's hard. P- people, that's this kind of thing that I, I don't choose where I live based on the political prescribe. Obviously, I wouldn't be in Louisiana, <laughs> yeah. all right? And uh, that, that, that's a, something that less grounded or more wealthy people than I am might have the option to, but I, I'm not going to move to a place based on its voting behavior. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I agree. Uh, this is a good question. The next question, uh, building on our conversation with the, uh, with the great Morgan Cloud, Drew in Cleveland says, how would the GOP presidential primary be affected by a Trump indictment in Georgia? Would the law and order party rally around Trump or dump him? Would his primary rivals use it against him or attack his indictment? Well, first of all, what law and order party? I mean, the criminality in the Republican Party is breathtaking. Uh, They're they're anti-law enforcement, they're anti-FBI, they're anti-Capitol Police. I mean, this is anything but... A, a, a law and order party, I, I, I promise you. So, and in, in if you actually look at Trump's numbers, which I have, 
he's right now clocking in at 43% among the Republican electorate. That's not an impressive number, all right? Now, now I, I know, and I, I know that you believe this too, Trump is unlikely to survive this. Trumpism is alive and well. Please right. see the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Or the Michigan so state, uh, state no, chairman. I, now, the argument that people will make, and I have to acknowledge this is a credible argument, that most in the Republican presidential primaries, it's overwhelmingly want to take all states. So if he, if he comes in at 37%, and there's three other people, it was conceivable with 37% of the vote, he can get 100% of the delegates. That, that, I, 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 I mentioned that as a possibility. I don't think it's a probability. I, I don't think he's going to be able, if he runs, I don't think he can, he can win the Republican nomination. And also, to be, to be fair, he, he could run as a third party and he would siphon off some pretty significant votes. I mean, they, they better have a, a, a very Trumpy nominee because he, 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 he hates the Republican Party more than I do, which is a lot. I mean, he can't stand it. It's personal time. He has one thing he cares deeply about, though, James, and it needs to be pointed out. He cares deeply about Donald Trump. Oh. He really does. That's the only oh. thing, but he really cares passionately about that, particularly if there's money involved. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't give a shit about the Republican Party. <laughs> the next question comes, and boy, this strikes, a, this strikes a nerve with me. Dan in Concord, New Hampshire, said, I've been a New Hampshire Democrat and been a fan of our primary, but I don't want to harden, harden the chances of getting a Democrat elected president. Should I continue to support the New Hampshire primary or, con, or, or uh, favor uh, one, uh, the first one in a more diverse state where black vo voices need to be heard? This is so misrepresented. Biden chose South Carolina to go first, and, include, and some people, including our friend Paul Begala, says that's just absolutely the way it should be to give blacks a greater voice. A greater voice? Who in the hell, which state was critical in 2008, 2016, 2020? South Carolina. South Carolina comes and the, the, the others comes, the others sort of do their stuff, and then South Carolina decides in a Democratic primary. So I think it's, I think the advantage of the New Hampshire primary, it's not representative. It's, it's uh, you know, not nearly enough people of, of color, but it has a couple of things. It's retail politics. You really have to go meet a lot of voters. That's not such a bad thing. And they do have more than most states. They have a number of really kind of working class whites who are at least amenable to voting for a Democrat. So I, I think it's a big mistake to move South Carolina first. I wonder if the, South Carolina is going to lose clout by going first rather than being the decider in the cleanup slot. Well, I, Paul's little best friend on this earth, I agree with him 95% of the time. The other 4%, I have mild disagreement. On this one, I, I have a, a, a substantial disagreement. The, uh, the first thing is the New Hampshire primary is not overly influential. And mm -hmm. it used to be, and, you know, you beat all and everybody gets to try them out and they can swing voters and et cetera, et cetera. It's a swing state. You know, we have pointed out before, if Al Gore carries New Hampshire, then we wouldn't have the disaster we have as a country. Uh, they have two Democratic senators. It's, it, it tends blue, but it, it's, you know, they have a Republican governor who's quite popular. And we've got two Democratic congressmen. Why are we doing this? And, and Southern blacks are, and justifiably so, 
the dominant force in nominating a presidential campaign. Now, we, we didn't win New Hampshire, but we won South Carolina. The same thing was true with uh, President Obama, the same thing true with President Biden. I think part of what's motivating this is that, you know, if J.B. Pritzker, Phil Murphy, and if Biden does run for re-election, which I still contend that he won't, but that, that's just me, that's just a, a guess. And if you go to New Hampshire, look, look what happened with, uh, I guess it was Gene McCarthy and Pat Buchanan, you know, Pritzker or Phil Murphy, one of these guys is going to get in. And, you know, South Carolina voters are, are if anything, more loyal and, and, and in some ways more conservative than New Hampshire primary voters. And I, I think this might have played some uh, part in it, but I, I completely agree with you and I completely disagree with Paul that the, the Southern blacks, the dominant force in the party, we're just needlessly... The pissing off a swing state. And the other thing that I know about New Hampshire, this New Hampshire primary is a little bit like they get the Super Bowl. I mean, people that, that you know, caterers and restaurants and, you know, hotels and God knows whatnot are, are, are this uh, valuable part of the economy. And for no reason in the world, we're going to fix something that doesn't need fixing. It's actually going to do more harm than good. Well, if you're listening, Paul Begala, don't deny South Carolina blacks their powerful position in the Democratic nominating process. Don't take that power away from them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's by far the, the dominant political force in, in picking a Democratic president right. nominee. Dot in San Antonio, Texas. James, uh, I love this as our final question. Would today's Republicans authorize uh, World War II again? I think Dot thinks they would fight in Japan, but not Germany. You know, the American, they, 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 you know, the Nazis had had deep influence in the United States. They had like a packed Madison Square Garden. Right. All right. right? They, they had a, a like a camp somewhere in Long Island. All right. And I, there's a deep fascination with fascism. Uh, in a Republican Party. I mean, a little bit making a distinction here, you know, that, that the, the Nazis are fascists, but not all fascists are Nazis, all right? I'm not saying the Republican Party is only a Nazi, but they they sure have sympathies toward fascism. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a provocative question. And you know, remember your history, though, we didn't declare war on Germany. Germany declared war on us. Right. After All right. Pearl That's the, the, after Pearl Harbor, we still didn't declare war on Germany. And, and once Pearl Harbor happened, Churchill knew that once the United States got in the war, that that was that they were going to win the war. But Germany actually declared war on the United States after Pearl. We we did not declare war on Germany. Right. I think we did after that, but they were the yeah. first to go. No, we did. It was, it was a matter of a couple but, of days. But, it was probably first, inevitable. But, 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 they, but Right. Yeah. Dot, that was a great question, and it's it a great sure thing was. to debate. And uh, I hope we added a little bit of, uh, of fodder to the, uh, to the debate. But thank you. Please keep those questions coming in. And like Dot, please tell us where you are from. Absolutely. San Antonio is a great place. Oh, uh, wow. South Texas, huh? great culture there. Wonderful, wonderful friends there. The only great disappointing place. thing, James, about San Antonio, the first time I went, I couldn't wait to go see the Alamo. 
And I thought I'd go about, you know, 25 miles outside of town. Right. It'd be like a right John there. Wayne movie. There'd be this long stretch, and then you'd see this little right. little uh, fort there. It, you know, it's a parking lot now, basically. Right. Right. I mean, it is. Was, and, and, and that river walk is as nice as advertised. Well, that's terrific. I love the yeah. river walk. I think the town's great. There's great food down there. Yeah. They, they had a great uh, Tim Duncan-led basketball team for a long sure time. Did. So there's a lot sure to did. like about San Antonio. A, a whole lot. All right, Dot. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Now, don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors. Hold on, bags. Magic Spoon, and Henson Shaving in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.